I'm Timothy Paul Jones. I teach apologetics, and I once told my daughter that Santa Claus died as a martyr, which did not end well when she told her friends. I'm Garrick Bailey, and when my family is sleeping and unaware, I change the thermostat to 66 degrees in our house. Well, atheist Richard Dawkins defines faith as a state of mind that leads people to believe something in the total absence of supporting evidence. Understood in this way, a Christian's belief in the resurrection of Jesus is completely irrational and lacks any supporting evidence. But is the Christian faith really that weak in its evidence? This week, Garrick and I will be taking a look at historical evidences for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then in the second half of the show, we'll review one of our favorite one-hit wonders, Norman Greenbaum's Spirit in the Sky. Welcome to Three Chords and the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. I'm Timothy Paul Jones. Each week, my co-host Garrick Bailey and I tackle an issue related to apologetics. Then we go looking for God's truth by reviewing a moment from the history of rock and roll. Thank you for joining us today on Three Chords and the Truth, where we defend the faith, do justice, and dig for truth in rock and roll. Well, according to atheist writer Christopher Hitchens, faith is the surrender of reason. Biologist Jerry Coyne similarly describes faith as the acceptance of things for which there is no strong evidence. He also says there is simply no way that any faith can prove beyond question that its claims are true. So how should Christians respond to claims like this, especially when it comes to the topic, the event of the resurrection? Well, I'm actually going to admit something here that may surprise you. And I would say that when Jerry Coyne says in his book, Faith Versus Fact, that no faith can prove beyond question that its claims are true, he's not wrong. First off, you find that human beings can find some reason to doubt or to question anything. If you don't believe that, you've never had a two or three-year-old in your household. They can doubt or question anything. For that matter, you've never had a, a middle schooler in your household because they also can doubt or question just about anything. But even beyond that, you can't prove beyond any possible doubt that religious claims about the past are true. But here's what I want us to see in this episode. That's not only true of claims related to religious faith, it's also true when it comes to any belief that is based on history. It's as true of the birth of Abraham Lincoln in Kentucky as it is of Jesus's birth in Bethlehem. It's as true of the the military campaigns of Alexander the Great as it is of the death of Jesus. And what artifacts and texts from the past provide for us isn't proof that's based somehow on experiments. It's plausibility that's based on historical artifacts and evidence. Okay, well then, how is it that Richard Dawkins and other atheists, especially these that we tend to call the new atheists, how can they claim that there is a, quote, total absence of supporting evidence for faith, end quote? Well, I think it's because, one of the reasons at least, is because they have an impossibly narrow definition of evidence. In other words, they're seeing evidence as only that which is empirical. Now, that word empirical, we'll toss it around, and I want to explain what we mean by the word empirical. Empirical knowledge or empirical evidence is knowledge that's gained by experiments and by observation. It comes from the Greek word empiria, which means by means of experience. But what they've done is they've narrowed 
narrowed their definition of evidence to include only empirical evidence. That is things that you can see, taste, touch, test, things like that. That's what they've narrowed it down to. You see it very clearly a few years ago with uh, Richard Dawkins when he was on Twitter. And he said in, in one of his tweets, accused again of ignorance of theology. But what is there in theology to be ignorant about? Tell me one theological fact and I'll learn it. Now, what he is saying in that is that there are no theological facts because he has defined fact as that which is empirically evidenced. And so he can conveniently ignore all the quote-unquote theological facts, which he doesn't think are facts at all, because of the fact that he has narrowed his definition of facts and evidence to that which is empirical. We see it again in Jerry Coyne, who we mentioned earlier, Professor Emeritus at the University of Chicago. And Jerry Coyne says, religious claims are empirical claims, and although some may be hard to test, they must, like all claims about reality, be defended with a combination of evidence and reason. So he says, religious claims are empirical claims. Now, as a sidelight, Jerry Coyne is completely confused at some level because he's confusing the terms empirical and ontological. That is to say, empirical is physical evidences or testable evidences, and ontological means it exists. And he's saying that religious claims are empirical claims. Well, they're not necessarily empirical claims. They're ontological claims. But even in that, what you see is that he has narrowed his definition of what is, that's ontology, okay? He's narrowed his definition of what is to that which is empirical. And I don't want to discount empirical evidence. Obviously, empirical evidence and research are really, really important. Every time you or I take our kids to the doctor and get a prescription for a medicine, we are trusting the people that we care most about with empirical evidence. That is to say, the reason this medicine is prescribed and the reason this medicine typically works is precisely because it has been tested, okay? But empirical evidences aren't the only evidences that exist. The evidence for Christian faith is primarily historical, not empirical. It's historical. It's events that happened in history. Faith may include more than evidence, but it certainly includes no less than evidence. Simply because evidence isn't empirical doesn't mean it's not evidence. And so what we have for the resurrection of Jesus in particularly is texts that were written in the first century, the autographs, the originals of these texts do not survive, but we have fragments from them from from as early as the second and third centuries that testify to this particular event. And so, again, I used the analogy earlier about Abraham Lincoln, where he was born. And how do we know that Abraham Lincoln was born in Hodgenville, Kentucky, and not Toronto or Addis Ababa? How do we know that he was born in a cabin? Well, the reason we know that he was born in Hodgenville, Kentucky, in a cabin that does not survive to this day, is because of the fact that there are textual evidences that testify to this, that we believe to testify truthfully to what actually happened. And it's the same with resurrection of Jesus Christ, that there are evidences that taken together suggest that this is a plausible event to believe in history. What are some of the ways that historians determine what probably happened in the past? 
Well, that's important for us to recognize that because part of what I want somebody who is an unbeliever to do is at least to weigh the evidence for Jesus in the same way that they might weigh the evidence for Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar or Tiberius Caesar or something like that. And some of the ways, there's not a comprehensive list, but some of the ways that we determine what happened in the past are, are there multiple witnesses? Is this something that only one person claims or are there multiple witnesses? Are there independent witnesses? That is to say, are there people who basically describe the same event from different perspectives? Are there witnesses with nothing to gain by the story that they're repeating or telling? Are there contextually credible witnesses? That is to say, does the testimony that's given fit the context of where they're claiming that this happened? Are there testimonies recorded while eyewitnesses are still alive? All of these are crucial ways that we often determine what may or may not have happened in the past. So what happens when we apply these approaches to historical evidence related to the resurrection of Jesus? Well, I think about that first one, multiple witnesses. Now, to be fair, we should not count Matthew, Mark, and Luke as independent, separate witnesses. They really are clearly drawing from one source about the resurrection, or at least a very few sources that are intertwined with one another. So I'm going to count them as one witness or as one testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. Even though they may be bringing in other sources, it's clear that Matthew and Luke are dependent at some level on Mark. So we'll count that as one witness at that point. But we also have, in addition to that, John, which John's gospel appears to be independent of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We have 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which preserves a slightly different tradition about the resurrection of Jesus. And there's another one. There's one called Papyrus Cairo 10759, or the Achmim Papyrus, which the text comes from sometime in the second century, although the actual document we have is from later, that gives what appears to be yet another independent account of the resurrection of Jesus. It has some strange things in it, but it definitely gives an account that is independent of the others of the resurrection of Jesus. What about your point of witnesses who have nothing to gain? Who are you referring to? What do you mean by that? What I mean by that is that the witnesses that are are describing this and those that are writing about this, do they have something to gain by telling the story the way they tell it? And so, for example, if it would have been possible that those in the early church could have gotten positions of power in the Roman Empire from what they wrote, or if it would have been possible for them to get some sort of vast amounts of wealth from what they wrote, then it would be something where it wouldn't necessarily mean that what they're claiming is false, but it means we ought to question it a little bit, think about it. And yet, of course, in the case of the New Testament, Nobody has anything to gain by this. In other words, by telling these stories, if anything, they get something negative out of it, not something positive out of it. They can face death. They can face martyrdom. They can face social exclusion. They can face disenfranchisement of their family and their friends. All of those things are what's going to happen to them. They have nothing 
to gain by that. And another one of those is contextually credible witnesses. And that means, does it fit the context? And I think that's one of the most fascinating things about the Gospels is that many people claim that the stories in the Gospels came from you know somebody who fabricated them in Asia Minor or Rome or Egypt or somewhere like that. But here's the problem with that claim. The Jewish names that were used in the area of Palestine, in Galilee, in Judea, those areas like that, were distinct and different from the Jewish names that were used anywhere else in the world. And if you were writing this somewhere else, you would not have gotten the right names, so to speak. If you were fabricating this somewhere else, you would have not gotten the right names that fit that area, that context, because they don't have they can't look this up in the on the internet. They can't find a phone book that has all the right names listed. And yet here's what's fascinating is that the names that as we look at tombs today, the names that it's clear that were most common in Judea, Galilee, those areas around there among the Jews are precisely the same names that are most common in the texts in the New Testament. Simon, Joseph, Lazarus, Judas, John, Jesus, all of these are the most common names. They were only the most common names in that region. That means the testimony has to have come from the right location, so to speak. And there are many other things similar to that, such as the place names. There's obscure place names that are used in the Gospels that people could not have found out from any documentary evidence if they were writing this somewhere else without any testimony from people who actually lived in that area. But what about historical textual witnesses to the early church or or the resurrection from folks entirely outside of the Christian faith. Now, first off, before I even actually answer that question, I want to address something related to that that is often brought as a very weak evidence against Christian faith and against the integrity of the Gospels. And it usually is stated something like this. Well, all the earliest references to Jesus and the most complete references to Jesus come from Christians, therefore they should be disregarded or discounted. But that's ridiculous because in the first and second centuries, no less and no more than today, people who write about something are people who are passionate about it. People write about what they're passionate about. If I'm going to write about sports, I'm not going to write about something horrible and ungodly like soccer. I'm going to write about something beautiful and wonderful and good like baseball. Why? Because people write about what they're passionate about. And so, shocker, the earliest and the most complete references to Jesus are from people who were passionate about him. Of course they are. That doesn't mean they were historically accurate. That doesn't mean they were historically inaccurate. It's simply letting us know that the people who wrote the most and the first about Jesus were people who were passionate about him. But even with that, there are references to Jesus outside of believers in Jesus Christ. One of those, for example, is in the writings of Josephus, the Jewish historian. Now, there are some references to Jesus in the writings of Josephus, as we have them now, that were almost certainly added later by Christian scribes. We should ignore those, push those off the table, say, no, we're not going to consider those. But even with those removed from our consideration, there is at least one reference to Jesus in the writings of Josephus that is very helpful to us. And in that reference, it refers to Jesus as the brother of James, and it refers to Jesus as the one 
called the Messiah. And this was in the late first century that Josephus wrote these words, which lets us know that he was familiar with who Jesus was. He assumes that his readers are familiar with who Jesus was, and he knows about Jesus's family, and he knows that Jesus is called by many the Messiah. We also have later on a correspondence between Pliny, who is a governor, and Trajan, who is the emperor at that time from 112 AD, in which he refers to Christians gathering to worship Christ as a god, and this very clear correspondence about people who are gathering in the name of Christ. We have references in the historian Suetonius and in the historian Tacitus. Both of them refer to Jesus and to Christians in the early 2nd century, referring to times in the 1st century as they are talking about some of the growth of Christianity and some of us, particularly the fire in Rome and the persecution of Christians. And so what we begin to see is precisely what we ought to expect to see, that people early on who were familiar with and who were fans of Jesus, we might say, are writing about him. And then as time progresses and there are more and more Christians, more and more people become aware of him, and it rises to the awareness of Roman and Jewish historians in the early 2nd century in particular, but even in the late 1st century. So we do have evidences about Jesus, about his existence, and, and roughly what people believed and thought about him from historians such as Josephus, such as Tacitus, such as Suetonius, and as well as this correspondence between Pliny and Trajan in the early 2nd century. Well, now is the time in the show where we venture into dangerous waters, where we take a risk of our friendship, of our fellowship with one another. The time of the show known as the Infinity Gauntlet. And as we always point out, this is the most dangerous portion of the show because we must reach within the very infinity gauntlet which Thanos wore in the Infinity Wars. And we reach within and pull out a question that is one of the most perplexing questions of humankind, the kind that keeps you up at night and unable to sleep because you cannot resolve this question. But we resolve it for you. Not only perplexing, but equally divisive. Friendships have been known to dissolve. Even marriages have experienced tension when facing such questions. Speaking of division, I'd like to make a quick episode disclaimer. Only half of this podcast's co-hosts think that the game, the sport of soccer, known to some as football, is ungodly and not worthy of our attention and love. That would be Timothy Paul Jones. The rest of us, that would be Garrick Bailey, really enjoy the sport and hope that none of you soccer fans stop listening to our show because of Timothy's opinion. So, here's the question this week from the Infinity Gauntlet. Which one is better and why? The One Ring or the Elder Wand? You know, here's what ends up happening every time, it seems like. Lord of the Rings always wins, I at know. least in my mind. And I realize in that the degree to which I become more and more an admirer of J.R.R. Tolkien and the worlds he created. Because we have, in the program so far, we've had things from Lord of the Rings go up against Star Wars. We've had them go up against Harry Potter. We've had them go up against all these other universes. And I think, if I remember correctly, Lord of the Rings always wins. I think you're correct. 
And so it's at a complete 100% win rate right now. And I have to say, once again, I'm trying to think of any reason why the Elder Wand from the Harry Potter universe, which is, of course, one of the Deathly Hallows that is the most powerful wand in the Harry Potter universe. And that wand, I'm trying to think of some way it could beat the one ring in Lord of the Rings. But I don't see any conceivable way that somebody with the Elder Wand, let's imagine even the most powerful person in the Harry Potter universe, Dumbledore or Voldemort or somebody like that, if they went up against somebody wearing the one ring, if for no other reason, they can't see them at that point to aim their curse in the right direction. But even if they could see them, I just think that that person is immortal and could simply destroy them with a snap of the finger or an aiming of the eye up on them. I cannot think of any way that the Elder Wand could beat the One Ring as much as I want there to be some way. I would agree. And I just keep coming back to this feeling or this theory that of all the authors or creators that we have discussed and, and that are involved with these questions indirectly, I feel as if Tolkien understood evil best. And therefore, because he understood it best, he represented it. He made it most real and most harrowing and so that when the good guys of the Lord of the Rings defeat the bad guys, it just seems more significant and more weighty. And the trials, the tribulations, the obstacles that they had to overcome just seem far greater. Now, this is one that I actually would be appreciative if someone who was a Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter fan would contact us and would say, why you think that perhaps the Elder Wand could defeat somebody wearing the One Ring. Because I don't want Tolkien to win in every single contest. But thus far, Tolkien keeps winning over J.K. Rowling, over George Lucas, over all of these others. And I would like at least there to be a bit more of a challenge. So if you can think of some reasonable reason why the One Ring might be able to be defeated by the Elder Wand, then let us know, and we will be glad to discuss that on a future episode. And remember, as believers in Christ, we accept all types of evidences that you may bring forth. You can bring historical evidences, empirical evidences, completely made-up evidences, and we would at least be willing to take a look at it. Rock and roll, it's one of the greatest inventions in human history and one of the supreme expressions of common grace. The way we see it, the golden age of this invention began with the summer of love and ended with grunge. And that's why each week in the second half of this program, Garrick and I review one of our favorite songs and go digging for divine truth in classic rock.
I'm Garrick from the 80s. And I'm Timothy from the 1970s, and so is this song. So let's talk about, before we get into the song Spirit in the Sky by Norman Greenbaum, let's talk about some other one-hit wonders. What are some other one-hit wonders that you can think of? Well, a couple of my favorites come from the 80s. One of the best of all time has to be Eye of the Tiger by the band Survivor in 1982. Uh, So, so good. So right. Good. One of the best songs probably would have not been well known apart from its place in Rocky right. Three. But what an amazing song. Later in the 80s came a song by the band AHA called Take On Me, which probably would have been popular regardless, but also had such an interesting music video that I thought was very uh, key to its success. But uh, to my knowledge, I don't think I've ever heard another AHA song. That would be an AHA moment if you ever did. I wasn't going to go there. Another one of the greatest one-hit wonders, and in fact, my favorite one-hit wonder ever, is Norman Greenbaum's Spirit in the Sky. What an amazing song that is. So first, let's talk about the guitar tone. It's so unreal, so distinct. How does he do it? So it's actually interesting that you ask about that guitar tone because I was recently trying to get this exact guitar tone. And there's a song that we do at Sojourn that has a similar opening riff to Spirit in the Sky, and it's called My Maker and My King. And we were going to do it on a Sunday night in the youth. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to try to get uh, this exact tone when I play the guitar on Sunday night. And so I was working on this tone, trying to get the exact tone. I put all sorts of pedals together, and I could not get this exact guitar tone. And so I did some research, and actually how he gets this guitar tone is that he has somebody customize a Fender Telecaster and put the circuitry from a fuzz pedal inside the guitar itself. And if you look at the video of Norman Greenbaum playing this song, you can see that on the on the cutaway of his Fender Telecaster, there's something that appears to be a control where I'm assuming he would turn on and off this fuzz pedal that is built into the guitar itself. And so that's how he gets this amazing resonant fuzz tone out of his guitar is by the pedal, the circuitry for it actually being put inside the guitar underneath the pick guard on the guitar. Yeah, it's uh, so unreal. So unreal. So a big question would be, why did Norman Greenbaum write a song about Jesus and a spirit in the sky? 
Well, the more you learn about Norman Greenbaum, the more unlikely that it is that he would write a song about Jesus and Spirit in the Sky, because he was raised in a devout Jewish household. He remains, as best as I can tell, an observant Jew to this day. And he had seen Porter Wagner singing a song, Old Time Preacher Man, on television. And what Greenbaum said after he saw this, he said, that's a little out of my league to write about preachers, but I can do it. I wrote the words in about 15 minutes. He decided he was going to write a song about Jesus. And so a Jewish folk singer writes a song about Jesus inspired by a country and Western song about a preacher. Revivals and camp meetings went for weeks. Folks came from all around to hear him preach. Daddy said if one is saved, it's worth it all. But the aisles were always filled at altar call. Daddy was an old-time preacher. So how does he do? In terms of being a successful song, he does quite well, right? Reprise Records releases the song in 1969, and it, it reaches number three on the charts in April of 1970. But in terms of getting Christianity right... Well, that's kind of a mixed bag, isn't it? It is. He says that, for example, God is a spirit in the sky, which isn't entirely incorrect to say that God is a spirit in the sky. Part of our theology proper is a recognition that God is a spirit. It says in John chapter 4 and verse 24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. But this gives us an opportunity to think about and to talk about this idea of a spirit in the sky. And it's important for us to recognize that whenever the word heaven appears in Scripture, it's the same word that is translated sky. That is to say, the word in Greek and in Hebrew that is translated heaven is also the same word as sky. And I can't imagine that as an observant Jew who probably knows at least some Hebrew, that Norman Greenbaum, I think he was probably aware of this. And when we pray, our Father in heaven, we say this, and so we recognize that God is our Father in heaven, that there is a sense in which God is in heaven, but what do we even mean by heaven? And that's important for us to recognize this, to think about what do we even mean by this phrase, in heaven? And it helps us to pause and to recognize this is metaphorical. It points to a divine dimension that is not so much up there or out there, but it's also here. It's also among us. It's trying to state that God is different from us, separate from us. And so if we mean that there's a separate divine dimension, that's entirely biblical. But if we mean that God exists somehow out there, way out there, he's distant, he's somewhere else away from earth, that's really not biblical at all. That's really what we call deism, the idea that God is distant, he's transcendent, but not imminent. He's not present with us, around us, on the earth. Yeah, I would point folks to a couple of helpful resources if you want to hear more, learn more, think about this more. One would be a short six-minute video on YouTube by the guys at The Bible Project, and this video is called Heaven and Earth, and they describe heaven as God's space and earth as our space, these two realms or dimensions, as Timothy said, that are distinct but also overlap in some sense. And so this video is very helpful, and they actually have a separate podcast, a wonderful podcast, where a lot of times they will discuss more in depth these short videos they make, and they have a 
four-part series on the Heaven and Earth video. And in fact, they even have a fifth episode, kind of like a Q&A regarding this video. So I would point people to that. We'll link to it in our show notes. And I think it's important for us to pause and think about that and recognize we use this word of God in heaven, and yet often what we mean by that at the level of lay people in our churches, what they understand is that God is somehow out there, which is not a biblical idea at all. It's that God is, yes, out there, but he's also here. He's also present among us. And so it's half of a biblical idea, we might say. It's true that God is out there, but it's also true that God is here and among us. And it helps us to wrestle with what do we even mean when we say our Father in heaven? Well, the song also makes some declarations about our soteriology. Now, soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. That's what we mean when we say soteriology. And in verse three of the song, he says, never been a sinner, never sinned. I've got a friend in Jesus. Now, I want to make an admission here. Until I researched this song, I heard this in a completely orthodox way. Here's how I understood him saying, never been a sinner, never sinned. I've got a friend in Jesus. I thought he was talking about justification, that if you have trusted in Jesus, you are as if you have never sinned in the eyes of God. That's what is often one of the phrases we use to describe this is we are simul justus et peccator. That is to say, we are simultaneously just and a sinner. So in the eyes of God, we are justified, we are righteous, even though we are a sinner. That's not what Norman Greenbaum meant at all in this song. That's not what he was actually getting at at this point. He said in 2015 that he still gets letters from Christians who point out that according to the Bible, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And he said his response is, I flubbed that part. What are you going to do about it? (laughs) So everyone listening to this show now knows that they don't have to write that letter and send it to Norman because he knows. He gets it. It's important for us to take a quick look at the history behind what Norman Greenbaum misses here theologically. We should look at Romans chapter 3 and Romans chapter 5 and recognize that every human being has sinned. That is to say, every human being, as soon as they become morally capable of making choices, they choose sin. But not only that, that we are also infected with sin, we might say, by means of the sin of Adam and Eve. And this is something that Christians have believed historically all the way back, we can look at in the second century and at a man named Irenaeus in his book Against Heresies, he said, in the person of the first Adam, we offended God, disobeying his precept. Now, the way Christians have understood our connection to the sin of Adam has differed over the centuries, and there have been different perspectives on that. But that should not overshadow the fact that this idea that we as human beings are organically connected, we might say, to the sin of Adam, that is something that Christians have believed all the way back. We see that clearly in Irenaeus, in Against Heresies by Irenaeus, where he says, in the person of the first Adam, we offended God, disobeying his precept. 
Yeah, and it develops later to where the way we speak of it is the guilt is imputed, right? It becomes our possession. It becomes a part of us because Adam represented us. And so we share in his guilt. Or, and this is the direction that Augustine goes, because we were present in Adam, we thus share his guilt. So a sin nature is inherited from our first parents. So simultaneously, we inherit a sin nature, and there is imputed to us somehow, and there's been different perspectives in church history on how that exactly happens, there is imputed to us the very sin of Adam both. Sin is something that is imputed to us, and a nature inclined towards sin is inherited by us. This notion of imputation is crucial in that because if it is not that sin is imputed to us, then how is righteousness imputed to us? This, How is it given to us? And so we see that this song is a great song, amazing song. Love it. One of the greatest one-hit wonders ever, but it also raises some significant theological questions about what do we believe about God? What do we mean when we say that God is a spirit? And what do we mean when we say heaven and sky and, and we make this distinction between heaven and earth? It's also helpful because of what it gets wrong, and it helps us to get that right theologically, this idea that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all inherit a sin nature. We all have imputed to us the guilt of Adam because he represented us. And that Norman Greenbaum gets wrong in the song. And so as we listen to it, we can be reminded both of what he gets right and he gets wrong. But of course, it is still a great song. Hit number three on the charts, April 1970. It was Norman Greenbaum's first, last, and only hit. But what a hit it was. to the part of our show where we discuss recommendations, further resources available to you that we know of to help you think further, to learn more, to dive in deeper on some of the topics discussed in this episode. So, Timothy, takeaways, recommendations, what do you have for us? Well, I want us to remember first that there are good and robust reasons and evidences to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want people to understand that. Don't be afraid and ashamed of what you believe about this, as if you have to hide it. It is something that is well-evidenced historically. Now, to help you make the case that it is well-evidenced historically, there's a few books I want to recommend. One of them is N.T. Wright's book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, and I would read that alongside or immediately after reading a book by Mike Lacona entitled The Resurrection of Jesus. Both of those books are sort of the best and most magisterial books about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the evidence for it. Be forewarned of their thickness. I just don't want anyone to be surprised by that. 
well worth it, but large reads. They are many hundreds of pages. I believe they are close to between the two of them. There's a little over 1,500 pages of reading between the two of them. I don't want to dissuade people from reading them, but make sure that you recognize that these books are of significant length. Now, if you are not interested in reading 1,500 plus pages about the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, this is about Jesus, folks. So I, I want to make sure that if you are rejecting 1,500 plus pages, you recognize that you're rejecting these 1,500 plus pages about Jesus. <laughs> but if you really do not want to read 1,500 plus pages about Jesus, there is a book by Peter Williams. Peter Williams is at Tyndall House at Cambridge called Can We Trust the Gospels? This one is considerably thinner. It would never make it as a doorstop. Both of those would actually function well as doorstops. This is a very thin book, a little over 100 pages, that really does introduce in an excellent and accessible way the evidences for the truthfulness of the Gospels, and particularly how they testify to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so if you're short on time and not into reading massive books, then read Peter Williams' Can We Trust? the Gospels. Thank you for joining us today. If you want to connect with the two of us, check out 3chordsapologetics.com. That's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. If you're interested in choosing one of the songs we review in the future or in picking up Three Chords and the Truth merchandise, go to patreon.com slash threechordsandthetruth. My name is Timothy Paul Jones, and I'm already looking forward to joining you next time on Three Chords and the Truth. See me out.